Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Jonah is a prophet of Israel, the northern kingdom, during the first half of the 8th century BC. According to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, he is from Gath Hefer. Um, he operates during the reign of Jeroboam II, who is in power from 786 to 746 BC. I have to admit to you that I am a little bit obsessed with Jonah. Um, in the same way that I am obsessed with the wise men and some of those. But this little book contains, we are familiar with the story of Jonah and the great fish or Jonah and the whale, um, but there are some other stories in here and some other points that get missed when we only cover it as a children's story in children's church. Um, we need to be revisiting the stories of the Bible to find the lessons that we learn When with really early children, we tell the stories of the Bible so that they begin to know the characters, but we have to go back and revisit them to see the lessons that can be learned. And as we have already seen, there are some of the stories that are not really appropriate for the youngest of children. Okay, Um, God calls Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrians, and to preach repentance to them. His message that we see in chapter 3, verse 4 is, 40 more days and Nineveh shall be no more. So it is a a judgment and a condemnation. Zephaniah, um, chapter 2, especially verses 13 through 14, and Nahum, the whole book, also prophesy against Assyria. We'll see in some of the other prophetic books little bits of pronouncements and judgment against other countries. But in this case, we actually see God telling the prophet to go to a foreign nation and prophesy against them. I want to remind you that prophets were known as being true prophets if what they prophesied came true, that's going to come into play um, in the the second, third, and fourth chapters. Jonah is the subject of this story, but he's probably not the author of the book. So at some point, somebody captures the story of Jonah and writes it. It's probably not Jonah. We have very few of the prophets who actually do their own writing and capture their own stories, and that tends to happen a little a little bit later. There are four chapters to this book, and the key verses occur in chapter 4, um, verses 4, and then verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry? What right do we have to question what God decides to do, especially when God decides to show mercy. So as our storyline progresses, we have a flight, a running from God, followed by a prayer, and a repentance and change of heart, obedience, anger, um, and then the lesson that God intends to teach us. The word great is used 14 times and the word bad is used nine times. So that repetition is something that we should notice and pay attention to. It is a contrast of things that are great and powerful 
as compared to the great and powerful God, and then where things are bad as contrasts with what God would intend. God's role as creator is emphasized in this book. We have the wind, the wave, the fish, the plant, and the worm, all of whom obey God. Assyria has experienced a military and a diplomatic, more than one. They've experienced military and diplomatic losses in their recent history, just before Jonah goes to prophesy to them. They are experiencing a famine. They are having uprisings among their own people. There is an earthquake and an eclipse, all of which are considered bad omens to the Assyrians. So their hearts and their minds have been softened and made ready to hear the message that Jonah is to bring them. Ironically, um, the Gentile enemies of Israel, the outsiders who are not considered by Israel to be under God's grace and protection, um, and that's going to include the mariners on the boat as well as the Ninevites, um, they are the ones who will model the appropriate response to God's grace. It's not the Israelites and the members of Judah who are doing so at this point. And it's not even Jonah until he has to have a dramatic come to Jesus moment, so to speak, in the belly of a whale or a belly of a fish before he responds appropriately. The message of the whole book seems to be, don't be like Jonah. Um, be like the Ninevites in this case, which is a, an interesting turn of events. Let's jump into the first chapter. You probably see the name of the Lord there as Lord in all capital letters. Anytime you see this, this is the proper name of God, which is Yahweh. Tarshish is the opposite direction from Nineveh. So Jonah is going to go as far as he can go in the opposite direction. Um, Tarshish is a Phoenician settlement on the western Mediterranean coast. He's literally running away from the presence of God, but we know from places like Psalm 139 that there's nowhere we can run from the presence of God. So he boards a boat to go even further away. A storm comes up. Jonah is oblivious. He's asleep. This reminds me of the story of Jesus who sleeps through another storm and his disciples want to know, are you not going to save us? We're fixing to die in this storm. The storm in his own, in Jonah's soul actually eclipses the natural storm. So he's not just asleep. It almost portrays him as being in a depressed sleep, like he is almost unconscious because he's uncomfortable being out of the will of God, but he simply cannot bring himself to do what God is telling him to do. The sailors cry out to their gods, um, just as Jonah was supposed to cry out against Nineveh. So it's interesting that we see this repeated theme of who do we cry out to and, and why. They cast lots to determine the responsible party. This was a very common practice. The participant, Jonah participates in the casting of lots, but he doesn't volunteer his story until the lots point him out. The mariners have a lot of questions for him, and verse 10 becomes a flashback. They know that he is fleeing from God, but the mariners don't know his God. 
Jonah then calls his God the God of heaven. In other words, the maker of dry land and the sea, the one who can control all that is happening. Things continue to get worse. They try to do it their own way. Um, They try to avoid throwing Jonah over by throwing anything else they can over. Is this not typical of us that we try to do it our way before doing it God's way? They finally pray to Jonah's God for relief. This, however, is not true conversion. This is a fear-based plea to if this is the God who can help us, let's cry out to this God. And so again, we see this crying out. They cry out to God, and the storm ends as soon as they cast Jonah over. And the fact that this God actually appears powerful scares the living daylights out of them. Now they come a little closer to conversion by engaging in sacrifice and making vows to this God. They are still not, however, becoming entirely faithful and converting. They are simply adding this God to their pantheon of gods. In verse 17, we see that a large fish swallows Jonah. There is nothing here that tells us this is a whale. It is simply a large fish. The fish becomes a means of salvation for Jonah to keep him from dying and drowning in the water. It's not punishment. It's actually sent as an act of mercy and grace and a reminder that we cannot escape God's presence or God's loving care. Um, In chapter 2, we see that Jonah spends three days in the belly of this fish. I'm reminded that just recently, as I took notes for this, we had a story of a man who actually got taken into a whale's mouth. It was accidental, um, and he was too large to be swallowed through to the belly, but he is in the whale's mouth. It was incredibly dark, and the... um, the man, the the diver, actually thought his life was over. So we see that it is possible for some of the animals in creation that we even know about to take in um, accidentally um, a person. And particularly, we know that we have some large whales that are pl- that are plant eaters and not carnivores. There would be very little digestive juices in their stomach, so it might be possible. Um, We've seen other animals get taken in by those plant eaters and manage to survive, or if they die in the stomach, um, they're not digested. I'm, I'm just planting the seed that this might could be possible to have happened. So, okay, let's move on. Uh, finally, after three days of being here, Jonah prays to God. He offers God a song of thanksgiving. Uh, He sings and he prays. And it's interesting to me that like in verse two, he refers to God having already saved him. He talks about this in the past tense, even though he's still in the belly of the fish at this point. He describes drowning or almost drowning and being saved gives his gratitude for being saved. He never says that he will go preach, but it's kind of alluded to in verse 9 that he'll do what he vowed. He'll pay his vows. He's vowed his life to God as a prophet and being faithful, and faithfulness right now means preaching to Nineveh. Um, His life has been given in service of God as a prophet. He talks about the temple. Um, Even the northern kingdom's temple Um, was in Samaria. 
and not in Jerusalem. So he may not be talking about the worship center in Jerusalem. He might be talking about the one in Samaria. He has a change of attitude, and his change of attitude triggers action. He's vomited up on the shore. Even when we come through the storms of life, even when we bring ourselves to a place of repentance that brings us back under God's loving protection, we often um, have some lingering consequences. We often, even when we are not out of God's will and we experience the storms of life, we come through it, but we feel vomited out onto the ground like life can be can be rough. In chapter 3, we find that our story essentially starts over. Uh, Jonah finds himself right back where he began, on on the ground, in Israel, being told to go to Nineveh. Uh, Often our journey of rebellion against God simply brings us right back to the starting point of God's plan. This is what is meant when it says that God works together all things for good to them who love God and are called according to God's purpose. Um, We can run away from God, but God does everything that God can to nudge us back in the direction of faithfulness. This time, however, Jonah is going to go in the right direction. He's going to cry out to Nineveh just like he was instructed to do. Nineveh is a large city. It takes him three days to walk across the city delivering his message. I want to talk for a moment about the use of the term 40 days. 40 is a number that occurs often in Scripture. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, The flood came for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days can mean literally 40 days and nights. It can also be used as a euphemism or as an idiom for meaning longer excuse me, longer than a month. So more than a single month, which is an extended period of time there. So it may mean that he's saying soon, um, not tomorrow, but very soon you're going to be destroyed. And this is what God says. And now comes the interesting turning point. Nineveh believes the prophet. They believe him. All those circumstances they've already experienced have prepared their heart to be receptive to the message. This, too, is what we see spoken of in the New Testament, that none can come to God but those whom God calls, like God prepares the heart. He gets us ready to hear. The Holy Spirit is already at work in our lives to prepare us to hear the message of grace and the call of God in our lives. We are able to hear and respond to the message in the right time. We, as already Christians, are called to share this message and to witness, but people's response depends on their timing and on when they are ready and able to hear it. So we're not being unfaithful and we're not being ineffective when we share the message and people aren't responding. They're responsible for how they respond and how they let the Holy Spirit till up the soil of their hearts to have the seeds of the gospel be planted. So Nineveh is um, receptive and repents. Verse 6, let's talk about that for just a second. He's probably not literally a king. He's called the king of Nineveh. It would have been the ruler. This would have been similar to the way Herod is the ruler um, in the New Testament of Judah. And we talk about Pilate, um, and he's referred to as King Herod. But they're really 
rulers of that area under a larger empire. So we have a ruler over Nineveh, which is a large city, but this would have been part of the larger Assyrian empire. The ruler, who's called the king, declares an extreme fast in order to hopefully escape the extreme disaster that has been prophesied against them. It's extreme because they're not, they're told not even to drink. No one is going to survive not even drinking for 40 days. So, but it's meaning they're going to consume very, very little water and even the animals are included in this fast. So it's an extreme fast. Now we see the people crying out. Look how many different people groups cry out in this book. And God does, in fact, turn away from his judgment. God is moved by repentance. Understand that God is not moved by the fast, even by the extremity of the fast. God's moved by the repentance that leads them to fast. God's not moved by our ritual actions. God is moved by our hearts because out of our hearts need to come our actions. We can't fool God. We can't manipulate God. Um, And the judgment of God is not indiscriminate. When we move ourselves out from under God's protection, it's not just willy-nilly. God does everything possible to keep us in faithfulness, to keep us under protection. And grace is universally available to all, not just to a particular nation, not just to a particular people, but to all. And we, as members of the church of Jesus Christ, need to remember that we're not the sole recipients of grace. We don't own God's grace. God's grace is available to all. And sometimes we see God's grace breaking out in areas and among people and people groups that we don't find deserving any more than Jonah found the Ninevites deserving. Um, But God's grace is universally available to those who are open to receiving it. Finally, in chapter four, we take up the issue of Jonah's attitude. Jonah's not happy that his preaching is successful. How's that for a turn of events? His preaching is actually effective, and now he's ticked off about it. Um, We are reminded that God is slow to anger. Jonah, however, is not. Um, I remind you that a prophet's true calling as a prophet is validated by if what they prophesy comes true. He's told these people they're going to be destroyed. Now what is that going to look like when they're not destroyed? There are going to be people who say Jonah is not a true prophet because he prophesied destruction and it didn't come. And that is going to be said primarily by his own people. The people of Nineveh understood that they repented and God relented. The people of Israel, however, don't want God to relent any more than Jonah does. And they're going to say, you prophesied destruction. It didn't come about. You may not be as good of a prophet as you think you are. Jonah is going to set out to rewrite history. And this is often what we want to do when we are angry. Um, He says now he runs because he knew God would relent and not um, actually carry through on destroying them. We need to be careful about trying to rewrite history once we get on the other side. We know from that first chapter, he, he ran because he didn't want to preach this message in the first place. 
In verse 2, we see a confession about God that is common in the Old Testament, that God is slow to anger. He's loving, gracious, and merciful, um, and He wants to do all He can to be good to His people. Take a look at Psalm 103, verse 8 on this as well. Jonah may be influenced here by nationalistic bias. Um, He wants Assyria to be destroyed and not saved because they're the enemy of his people. We need to always remember that nationalism can occlude our spiritual vision. It's okay for us to love our country and want good things for our country, but nations are not synonymous with God's people and They are not the sole recipients of God's grace. We're even guilty of doing that as citizens of the United States. So we need to be really gracious and have a little mercy on Israel for doing the same thing. As I said, Jonah may fear loss of his reputation because prophets were proved by their prophecies coming to pass. Jonah now tells us that he wants to die. This seems extreme, Um, But prophets also seem to be given to emotional swings. We know that prophets are very often artists, musicians, performance artists. Um, They may as well have um, painted and sculpted and created other kinds of art. And we know that artists, because they are highly Um, emotional people can be given to emotional mood swings. We've seen this in Elijah right after his confrontation with Jezebel and the prophets of Baal that is incredibly successful. He then experiences a depression and wants to die in 1 Kings chapter 18. Wesley imagines God's answer here um, as God saying to Jonah, you would be their butcher but I would be their God. I would bring them into my fold. I would be to them what I am to you, gracious and merciful. Um, that always needs to be our at the forefront of our lives, that we love because he loved us. Um, we see this reflected in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus goes on, I believe it is in the Gospel of Matthew, to say, forgive, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In other words, let us be instruments of forgiveness because you've forgiven us. Jesus underscores that by saying, if you don't forgive, my Father's not going to forgive you. In other words, do unto others as you would want God to do unto you. Um, God, we often would be people's butcher when God wants to be their Savior and wants to be to them what God is to us. Okay, so in the same way that God provided a fish for Jonah's salvation, God is now going to provide a plant to save him and provide shade. This is probably a castor bean plant. We get an object lesson here for Jonah. We see that Jesus continues to teach through object lessons. The prophets very often teach through object lessons. The festivals of the Old Testament are object lessons to the people of Israel, visual reminders of things. And now God is going to teach the prophet with an object lesson. The plant has come and provided him shade. Now a worm is going to come and eat that plant. We have a sultry east wind, my translation says. This is a sharkia. 
I'm not pronouncing that right, I feel pretty sure, or a Sirocco. Um, the first one, I think, is pronounced Sharkai, maybe. S-H-A-R-K-I-Y-E. And Sirocco, S-C-I-R-O-C-C-O. These are hot, dry, dusty winds that have a huge, high positive ion content. And we know that these, these wind storms can alter moods and behavior of the people on which they come. And so that's what we have happen here now is this high ion wind come through and it helps to change Jonah's mood. He wants to die again because the the plant has now died because of the worm. God bless Jonah. He, he's tired. He's angry. He's ticked off and he's suffering from emotional mood swings. He just can't seem to pull himself completely out of it. He talks about not knowing his right hand from his left. This is a common phrase indicating lack of knowledge, and it really means infantile development. You know how children don't know, they almost seem to not recognize that their hands belong to themselves, that their feet, they're so surprised by their own bodies and what they can stick in their mouth. And they learn to pass things from one hand to the other. And it's like those hands operate independently of the infant's mind. So that's the picture we're getting here of not knowing the right hand from the left. And then the book ends really abruptly. I think the ending is meant to shock us. Jonah cared more about this plant than he cared about Nineveh. There were 120,000 people in Nineveh that Jonah was not going to miss a beat seeing be destroyed. But God cared about those 120 people in the same way that Jesus talks about the shepherd caring about the one sheep. God cares about each and every person, and he's trying to teach Jonah this same lesson, and by having the story be captured to teach us that. Um, Jonah doesn't want God to care about these people, but God does. Think about what this means for all the war, all the killing that we've seen given to us in the Old Testament, all the war and killing that we see experienced in our own human history. And there, this abrupt ending what What is it to you if I want to be gracious and merciful? It's the very nature of God. So it leaves us with an abrupt ending to contemplate what is God saying to us about God's love and His attitude toward all people. Um, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about this tiny little book of Jonah. <music>